This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. We're here today with Professor Julie Mafarley. Professor Mafarley is a law professor at the University of Windsor, and she has published extensively in the areas of conflict resolution, mediation, and legal practice. Professor Mafale is also committed to access to justice research work and has recently initiated the National Self-Represented Litigants Project to understand better the hardships and challenges presented to self-represented litigants in Canada. So without further ado, let's jump in and learn the ins and outs of professorship from Professor Mafale. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Mafale. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself without talking about the law? <laughs> well, that actually is remarkably easy because <laughs> Laura is a very small part of who I am. Um, well, I am um, a uh, Canadian by residence. I've been living in Canada now for I think about 25 years, and I certainly feel like Canada is my home, um, but I am from the UK, and all of my education was done in the UK, and I was actually a law professor in the UK, as well as, uh, oh, I said the word law, oh, I'm not supposed to, <laughs> I was a professor in the UK, as well as in Ireland, and in Hong Kong before I came to Canada, so um, I have been here a long time, I'm sure probably all of your lives, but um, for me, part of my life is still in the UK and I go back and forth regularly. I have three daughters and one son um, at the moment. Two of my kids live in Europe and two of them in uh, Canada. Um, I'm married, I have two dogs. And the other thing I suppose that's important about my life for me that I would uh, I would say right up front is that I am an equestrian, which means that I ride horses. Um, I have horses and I ride. I've actually just come from an extremely cold barn um, to do this interview with you. And so horses and horse riding are also a big part of my life. Wow, nice. that's such an exciting life. <laughs> Could you let us know what was your law school experience like? Um, I thoroughly disliked law school. Um, I went originally thinking that this was the way I was going to become a great champion of civil rights and, you know, be able to sort of appear in the midst of um, demonstrations and, and protests and, and help people um, you know, by advocating for them. Um, but that was a bit of an illusion. And when I got into law school, um, which in the United Kingdom we do as undergraduates, so I was actually in law school at 17, um, I looked around my law school class and thought, God, these people look really boring. Um, and I wasn't really very excited about it. And I spent most of my time uh, playing sports, um, avoiding going to the library and studying, 
um, and taking political theory courses. So I guess in retrospect, um, what is one thing that you would do differently if you were back to law school? Well, well, that's, that story really makes it sound like, you know, one thing I would do differently is not go to law school, but of course that's not quite how my life has worked out. Um, I did when I graduated from law school, um, I did make a bonfire of all of my books and notes um, in the back garden, in the backyard, because I was quite sure that I didn't want anything more to do with law. Um, And I spent a couple of years traveling in Africa and in Europe and uh, working in various short-term jobs. Um, What would I do now that was different? Probably nothing. I think that that isn't because I made good choices. Um, I made some bad choices, I think, at different times. But I think that I have been very fortunate that this somewhat serendipitous path that I have taken that has given me a lifetime now of incredibly rewarding and satisfying work with law students, with lawyers, and with people who are affected by the legal system. Um, I wouldn't change any of that. Could you describe your career development from articling to your role as a professor at the University of Windsor? I'm sorry. I'm laughing only because this might not be exactly what you were expecting. First of all, I didn't do articling. Um, As I mentioned, I actually burned all my books and notes after law school. So um, I wasn't going to be looking for articles or going on in law at all. Um, And I spent, as I said, a couple of years traveling um, and just doing work where I traveled in order to continue to support that kind of lifestyle. Um, It came to a little bit of a head, however, um, about two and a half years after I had graduated from law school, when I was in Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, and the... um, The only job I had been able to find locally um, was uh, in a a grocery store. And the grocery store, um, this was just before Christmas, and the grocery store was not unionized, and the heating system broke down, and it wasn't repaired. The management didn't repair it. So I organized a protest amongst the other employees at the grocery store um, against the fact that the heating system wasn't working. And the result was that I was removed from the grocery store and instead placed in a tent in the parking lot where the grocery store was offering Santa visits because this was just before Christmas. So I became um, Santa's assistant, I suppose, in the parking lot, um, as you know, as a result of my um, my activism. It was very cold in the parking lot, um, and Santa was oh. pretty obnoxious. Um, and I sat there for a couple of days and started to wonder what exactly was it I was doing with my life. <laughs> So I went to the local law school, which was University College Cork. And I offered to teach as an adjunct, as a sessional lecturer, because I thought anything has to be better than sitting in a freezing cold tent in a parking lot with Santa. Um, 
and I was told there were two courses they needed somebody to teach. Neither of these courses I'd taken in law school, but I decided I could bluff it. So I said, oh, yes, I'd be very happy to teach commercial law. And I spent the next couple of weeks in the Santa tent reading the commercial law textbook. And in January, I became a law professor. Wow, that's quite a big turn. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that was the answer you were necessarily expecting, were you? (laughs) um, Are there any challenges like... um that sort of presented to you as you're developing your career? So, um, yes, many. Um, I think, you know, a couple of things that I would highlight. Um, I still feel very uh, frustrated and disappointed generally with the state of legal education. I've spent over 30 years now as a law professor And I've developed lots of different courses and I've worked with many wonderful colleagues and many wonderful students. But I think that we still present legal education to students in a very abstract way that we don't really equip people for the practice of law Um, and our continued focus on things like Appellate mooting means that we're basically stuck in about the 1950s. And I do find that very frustrating. And it's difficult to persuade people to change. Um, You know, when there has been something done a particular way for a long, long time, it's always difficult for people to want to change. And I think that I would certainly say that trying to push curriculum reform forward in law school is a life apparently a lifelong challenge. Um, The other thing I would say is that when I first became a law professor, um, and by the way, after I um, made that somewhat bizarre journey from the uh, Santa Grotto to the law school, I did after that then go back to school. I did a master's and a doctoral thesis in law. But my career in those early days, and actually still today, Um, has certainly been affected a great deal by what it means to be a woman in a mostly male-dominated space. Um, We now have almost as many women faculty at my own law school. Um, I think we actually have a few more women faculty than male faculty, but it wasn't always like that. And even though we have far more um, women students and far more women faculty, law is still in many ways a very traditional and a very male-dominated discipline. And I certainly found um, that it was difficult to be taken seriously um, as a woman professor um, and as a woman scholar, and that I had to you know, work twice as hard to be taken seriously. Um, and I think that to some extent, this problem continues. It's it's not anything like as, as explicit or obvious as it used to be. Uh, but I think that there is still um, a very... Um, a very... a very strong bias towards work that tends to be scholarship, that tends to be, uh, you know, very rational, very logical, um, and somewhat forensic. 
Um, and the work that I've always done has been much more about trying to understand people's personal experiences and trying to um, input those experiences that people have as clients and as users of the system into legal practice. And, and that's still a bit of a marginalized area of work. Um, so I think, you know, that's probably enough challenges to be going on with. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've had an amazingly privileged position. I've been incredibly fortunate with the support of research funding, and I've done some fascinating projects that I have really loved doing. But those challenges do remain. And what advice would you give to a law student, or more specifically, a female law student trying to identify her career path? Well, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I say a lot these days to students and spend time talking to them about is that this is a period of, of incredible change in the legal profession, not just the legal profession, but actually all the professions. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is the impact that the internet has had on, on the work of all professionals. Um, you know, people no longer have to go to a lawyer to be able to find out something about the law. Um, they don't have to go to a financial advisor to invest their, their money, et cetera. So I think it's a time of enormous change. Um, and there is a very large group of people who now are effectively disenfranchised from accessing legal services, that is personal legal services for things like family law, employment, wills and estates and so forth because they can't afford the current level of cost of legal services and the, and the very rigid way in which services are charged. So I very much encourage students these days to think about who they want to work with, what kinds of clients they want to work with, if they're interested in working with personal clients, to think about different ways to offer services and ways to reduce costs. Um, there are increasingly young lawyers who don't have fancy offices. They work off a laptop, so their, their overheads are much reduced. They offer coaching or limited scope services instead of full representation. And I think that these are all very exciting and, and also, um, you know, economically viable alternatives for people coming out of law school to kind of reshape the way that legal services are being offered. Now, you mentioned, you know, did I have any particular advice for women? Um, I think, I mean, I, I'm generally a very optimistic and upbeat person, but, but I think I'm also a pragmatist. And I think that I would always want young women going into the practice of law to be aware that they are going to encounter still an enormous amount of sexism, um, an enormous amount of um, assumptions about the ways that they should behave, the kinds of things I was, I was touching on earlier on, and that they need to be ready for that. Uh, and they need to be able to feel confident in their own abilities and not, if you like, sucked into um, the kinds of conventions that have been around for such a long time. I mean, just to give you an example, um, there is a very strong tradition in the legal profession that litigators have to be um, 
let's call them table bangers, you know, people who um, are very argumentative and rigid and positional and so forth. Now, in reality, the very best litigators aren't like that at all, but that's still a very strong um, norm out there that people are expected to kind of act tough. Um, and I think both men and women um, find that an expectation that they don't necessarily want to meet. And I think that there are different ways of doing that kind of work. As I say, I think the most effective people actually aren't that rigid and positional at all. They're people who are really good communicators and strong negotiators. And I think that as a woman going into legal practice, it's important not to feel that somehow you have to behave in that um, you know, tough litigator way in order to be credible, because you can be credible in lots of different ways that are true to yourself and will also give your clients excellent service. Thank you for your valuable advice. So switching gear a little bit, um, I understand that you have recently initiated a research project on self-represented litigants. Could you describe what the National Self-Represented Litigants Project is about? Yeah, um, well, I actually did a research project, a qualitative interview-based research project from 2011 to 2013 with self-represented litigants in family and civil court in three provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Ontario. And this was the first time in actually either the US or Canada, anybody had actually talked to self-represented litigants directly um, for a research project. We, we tend to talk to one another in the justice system when we do research. We ask one another what we think. And I thought it was important to actually go directly to the individuals who were representing themselves to find out why and what their experiences were. Um, and the answers to those two questions, uh, although, you know, I ended up collecting an enormous amount of data um, and my study has now been replicated in the United States with the same results. But the answers to those two questions are very simple um, in some ways. Why are people representing themselves? Because they can't afford lawyers. More than half the people in my study had begun with lawyers but ran out of money. And what kind of an experience are they having? There are a few exceptions, but basically miserable. Um, people aren't doing this because they're having a good time and enjoying themselves or fancy themselves as Perry Mason. This is something that is being forced upon them. So when I concluded that study and produced the data for the results, I brought together a group of lawyers and judges and policymakers and self-represented litigants in Windsor to discuss the results. And out of that meeting, um, it was decided, it wasn't really my idea at all, that the work that we were doing with self-reps should continue, that there needed to be a national organization that continued to advocate on behalf of self-represented litigants, um, that they were, you know, an, a, a significant part of the justice system now, and the justice system had to be willing to respond and adapt to them. And we also continue at the project to do research. So it, at the moment, we have a very large project in which we are tracking the case law that's starting to come out on issues relating to self-representation. So, for example, 
how far judges should offer minimal assistance to self-represented litigants, whether self-represented litigants can get costs, just like lawyers do if they're successful. Um, and we are also we also do a variety of other projects that again goes directly to self reps and tries to uh, to find out more about their experiences and what kinds of services they need and want. Um, so and we also the third part of what we do is we develop resources for self reps. Um, I, we, we're not trying to encourage anybody to represent themselves, but it is a reality that we now have more than half the people in family court across the country um, coming without a lawyer, unable to afford a lawyer. And that number is closer to 80%, 8-0 in urban centers. So these individuals um, really need as much assistance as they can find. They're often very smart, very educated, but they're in a system that they're completely unfamiliar with. So we develop what we call primers that help people to you know prepare and help them to anticipate what's going to happen in the system so we have one on uh, you know courtroom presentation skills we have one on trying to negotiate a settlement we have one on working with the lawyer on the other side and ways to do that effectively and constructively and so forth could you briefly explain to our audience what kinds of challenges self-represented litigants are facing now when they um, try to access the justice system? Uh, well, there's, there's a pretty long list. Um, I think the one, though, that I would put at the very top is um, individuals who are in court, and this might be especially true of family litigants, are already in a difficult place in their lives. That's the reason they're in court. Um, anybody who's going through a divorce, even if it's a relatively non-contentious one, you know, they're in a real period of transition. Um, and they will probably be juggling a lot of things around that if they have children and trying to decide where to live and so forth. And to do that and to also try to teach yourself how to file your documents and teach yourself how to represent yourself at a hearing is a very overwhelming thing for people. And self-represented litigants suffer an enormous amount of stress as a result. Um, and many people, you know, really suffer from extreme anxiety that affects their health in all kinds of ways. And of course, there's always the anxiety about finances because many self-represented litigants I mentioned earlier have previously had a lawyer represent them and they are often now in debt because they're trying to pay back um, the legal services that they had, but now they're continuing on their own. So I would say the kind of the emotional stress and the pressure on people is, I think, very underestimated, uh, just how bad that is, just how difficult that is. And it's something that we see very close up all the time at the Self-Represented Litigants Project. In terms of working through the system, um, people are challenged really at every single point. Um, two things that self-represented litigants particularly talk about as very, very difficult um, are the beginning of a 
of a case. So when they're filing the court forms and bear in mind that even if you're having a relatively non-acrimonious divorce, you still have to file for divorce. This is not an administrative process in Canada or the US, it's a legal one. So no matter how amicable the divorce, you still have to file documents. And these forms are complex. They're difficult for lawyers sometimes to complete um, appropriately, and people really struggle with that. The other thing that people really struggle with is standing up in court and speaking on their own behalf, because as I said, they're often people who are in a, a very you know, high state of anxiety, a very difficult time in their life, and this feels incredibly intimidating to do this. So, you know, those are just a couple of the challenges. But I think that when you think about them and you imagine that it was you who was trying to get your child support sorted out or try to um, get compensation for having lost your job, um, you can see that doing that on your own without any kind of legal background is a very challenging thing to do. We really appreciate all the things you do for the self-represented litigants in Canada. Um, could you tell us what are the biggest challenges presented to you and your team since the launch of this project? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, there are many. <laughs> um, I think that the first challenge that is still sometimes a problem, although it isn't as bad as it was to begin with, is that in many ways what I'm doing when I talk about this research and I speak you know, to um, lawyers groups in Canada and the US and Australia and England, you know, all across the world and at conferences, basically I'm bringing them really bad news. I'm bringing them news that people can't afford them. People are pretty pissed that they have to do this on their own. They're upset. And the self-represented litigants who lawyers and judges for obvious reasons find often to be um, you know a bit of a pain because they're not dealing with people who are experts here but people who you know really are just trying to muddle through they're not going away it's not going to change um, you know we can't solve this problem it's so enormous now with public legal aid it's it would be good to have more public legal aid but the gap between the people who um um, qualify for legal aid, which of course is, is in Ontario, that's $12,000 income a year for a single person. So there's very few people. There's virtually no family in civil legal aid anymore. To go from that to the level at which you can actually afford to pay a lawyer $300 or $400 or $500 an hour, it's most of us. Um, and so part of what's been challenging is sort of trying to face the profession with that reality um, because it's not something that people like to hear. Uh, it's bad news. You know, it, it was easier in the old days when everybody had a lawyer. Um, I think another challenge that we face is that amongst people who are representing themselves and, and some of these folks, you know, sort of even after their cases are over, have become very engaged in the idea 
of really, you know, campaigning for, for better access to legal assistance and access to justice, they're very frustrated. Um, you know, we hear all the time from people who are having a difficult time and are very overwhelmed by it. And so we take, I suppose, a lot of emotional flack from people. I mean, you know, we're there to be supportive, but there's only so much we can do. And that means that sometimes we're dealing with people who are very upset. Um, sometimes they're angry. And I think that for myself and my team and a lot of the direct communication that we get, we have with self-reps every single day of the year is handled by an amazing student team who've been trained to try to respond to that. I, I mean, I think that's a hard thing to do. I think it's, it's, it's a very... Um, it's a very burdensome responsibility to try to offer support and empathy to a group that feels itself to be um, treated very badly. Oh, thank you. So um, I guess like, when did you first identify your interest in access to justice and, um, and more specifically your interest in helping self-represented litigants to, to gain more meaningful access at the court? Well, I think access to justice, you know, depending on how you define access to justice, has been a sort of consistent theme of the work that I've done. Um, you know, I've worked on a number of different issues over the last 35 years, ranging from, um, I worked on, in the United Kingdom on um, changing the law around corporal punishment of children, which was, you know, in those days was something that happened a lot in schools. They used to use um, the cane or the paddle, as it would be called in North America. Um, I've also worked on issues of access to um, reproductive um, health services and, um, and to abortion in the Republic of Ireland. And I would myself personally say that was an access to justice issue it's about giving women health choices uh i've worked with the muslim communities in canada and the u.s looking at the ways in which they sometimes prefer to use uh processes that are meaningful for them um within the uh, their mosques and within their communities and they, you know, are looking for ways in which those processes, I suppose, can be respected and reflected in the mainstream legal system. So, um, you know, all of these projects, to me, w were about access to justice on some level. It just depends on how, you know, you understand access to justice. I got interested in the self-representation issue when I first became aware that the numbers were as high as they are. And, and I had no idea until 2011 just how many people were now coming without lawyers to the courts. That was a huge revelation to me. Um, and once I realized that, I felt that that was something that it was really important to do research on. And I have subsequently, obviously, done a lot of work in that area. Um, the other area that I, I continue to do a lot of work in um, is in relation to access to justice for the victims of sexual violence. Um, we currently don't really have any good processes for enabling people to come forward 
and report sexual violence and feel supported. Um, and the processes, the civil, the criminal, and the workplace processes are often seen as being um, unhelpful um, to people who have experienced sexual assault or harassment. So I'm continuing, in fact, this is what my new book is about, to do a lot of work on how we might reimagine and change processes to allow better access to justice for the victims of sexual violence. Thank you for that. Um, you just mentioned your new book. Congratulations on that. Um, other than that, is there a career goal that you're still striving for? <laughs> well, that, you know, that, that's, that's very sweet that you asked that. Of course, I feel like, you know, I'm so old. Why would I have any goals left? But the reality is, you know, I'd really like to see change in the areas in which I work. I would like to see, and we are seeing, we are starting to see some changes in the way that court processes work, in the ways that lawyers respond to self-represented litigants, judges respond to them. Um, I would really like to see changes in the way in which the justice system and workplace processes respond to allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault. So, you know, I suppose my career goal is less about, you know, I want to publish X number of books. It's more about seeing change in the areas that I feel are very important and that I'm going to continue working in as long as possible. Great. Thank you for all your time today. Thank you for joining us today and sharing with us all your wisdom. You're very welcome. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds. <laughs>